I hadn't seen Andy in a long time. I thought, you know what, he needs a deputy. He didn't have one in the pilot. So I called him up and uh, he said, that's a good idea. Let's go talk to him. Actor Don Knotts, today on... Now I've heard everything. I'm Bill Thompson. So welcome to Now I've Heard Everything, where today we are launching season three of this podcast. My name is Bill Thompson. Let me reintroduce you very briefly to Now I've Heard Everything, in case you're just joining us for the first time. I was in radio for 45 years before my retirement a couple of years ago. And during that time, I interviewed over 10,000 famous people, not so famous people, sometimes people you've never heard of, but a lot of celebrities, actors, musicians, athletes, political leaders. And what I'm doing now, because I've archived all those interviews over the years, what I'm doing now is sharing some of those archived interviews with you here on Now I've Heard Everything. So to get us started on season three, all this month, all during January, I picked out some really, what I think are some very interesting interviews that I've done over the years. Starting with today's, an interview I did now over 20 years ago with one of my all-time favorite TV actors, probably one of yours as well, Don Knotts. You may remember him best as Deputy Sheriff Barney Fife on The Andy Griffith Show. Maybe Ralph Furley from Three's Company. Maybe you remember him from the Apple Dumpling Gang movies that he did with Tim Conway. Maybe you remember him from The Ghost and Mr. Chicken, The Shakiest Gun in the West, The Reluctant Astronaut, The Incredible Mr. Limpet. Or maybe even most recently you remember him from his small role in Pleasantville. Don Knotts had a long and very fruitful career that actually began not too long after World War II, but which really took off when he reconnected with an old friend of his, a young guy named Andy Griffith. I had the chance to meet and interview Don Knotts in November of 1999. He had just written a book called Barney Fife and Other Characters I Have Known. So here now, from 1999, Don Knotts. You know, even as we speak, there are millions of Americans rushing to the bookstore to buy this. There aren't any left in Washington. This office bought them all. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> and it occurred to me, everybody's going to be asking in the most loving way, what took you so long? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I didn't think there was any hurry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been waiting for a book like this that has all the inside scoop and things like this for years. <laughs> oh, well, here it is. <laughs> <laughs> you, you got your start as a ventriloquist. That's how I started out as a kid, yeah. I don't think I've ever actually known a human being who actually ordered one of those ventriloquist devices from the catalog before. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, you're looking at one. <laughs> the ventrilo, they said. Put it in your mouth and throw your voice. <laughs> <laughs> now, also, just before we came in, I did get a telegram from the Pentagon. They found a very short man named Danny on a beach in the Pacific. <laughs> That's right. And he's wandering around saying, Don, come back, come back. <laughs> You left your dummy behind? Yeah, he got washed overboard. <laughs> That's what I told him. Man overboard. <laughs> but that was a turning point for you because that was when you decided you didn't need a dummy to be funny. You could be funny just by yourself. Yeah, I start, I was working with a comedian at that time named Mickey Shaughnessy. And uh, I, I didn't want him to, to use me as a ventriloquist anymore. I just wanted to work with Mickey and they wouldn't do it. So I left the dummy. I was 
I said, I don't know what happened to him. He's lost. <laughs> it, it, it occurred to me as I was reading your book how different your life could have turned out had you, had you not put down on your papers when you first went into the, the military that you were a ventriloquist. Oh, I know. Isn't that something? <laughs> what a stroke of fate that was. Wow, I know. Now, after the war, you were one busy guy in radio and television and Broadway. You were, you had your, you were busy seven days a week. <laughs> yeah, for a while. And then suddenly I didn't have anything. <laughs> but that's the nature of show business, I that's guess, right. feast or famine. But along the way, of course, you tell the story in the book of how you met this guy named Andy Griffith. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened was there, there was a play produced on Broadway by Morris Evans called No Time for Sergeants. And it starred Andy Griffith, and I got a small part in it. And that's how we met. We became friends. Just the same Morris Evans who played uh, on, on Bewitched, the, 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 uh, Samantha's father, the, the, the British Shakespearean actor. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny everything how everything just fits together. Now, we've, as, as you fast forward in your book a couple of years, you're sitting at home watching television one evening. Here comes the Danny Thomas show. And it's the pilot for the new Andy Griffith that's show. That's right. And I thought, wow, and I hadn't seen Andy in a long time. I thought, you know what? He needs a deputy. He didn't have one in the pilot, so I called him up, and uh, he said, that's a good idea. Let's go talk to him. And the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> yeah. Now, you mentioned something in the in the book that I had noticed, too, and I never had never seen it addressed before. In the, the very first episode in which you and Andy appear, you're referred to as his cousin. <laughs> yeah, I think they did that just for a joke, to pay off some kind of a joke there, but they never referred to it that way again. <laughs> Well, but now that that too raises an important point that you say in the book is that when Andy and, and you would sit down with the writers, if it sounded like a joke, it had to go. That was Andy's idea. Yeah, he, he wanted everything to. He didn't want anything to sound like it was just a joke in and of itself. So he'd say, if it sounds like a joke, throw it out. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, my kids, they wonder, they say, why, Dad, why do you like that old show? First of all, I can't understand why I like something that's in black and white. <laughs> but they ask me, they, they, and, they, and I got to thinking well, one day, why do I like that show so much, the Andy Griffith show, the, the, the Barney episodes? And I realized it's two reasons. One, it's genuinely funny. It's not just funny. It's, it's really genuinely heartfelt funny. But the second reason is you made sure that everybody on that show had dignity. And there was a real third dimension to every single character on that show. That's true. That's true. That I think that set it apart uh, from the, the sitcoms you see today, for example, where they're kind of like one-dimensional, two-dimensional, I should say. Mm -hmm. Even a character like Otis was given the dignity of knowing that, uh, <laughs> you know, when he was named Mayberry's most distinguished citizen, that he could clean himself up and accept that award gracefully. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, i got to ask you something. All right. You've noticed I'm a man of, of considerable girth. <laughs> Not too much. Yeah, well, it, it has occurred to me when I watched those reruns, you know, Hal Smith was a sizable man. You know, now, now you've, you, you've known Hal Smith. Now you look at me. Do I, do I resemble Otis? <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going on a diet tomorrow. <laughs> now he was much bigger than you. <laughs> well, wonderful characters you worked with on that show. Oh, they're great actors. I, I mentioned it in the book. I don't. I, I'm just amazed that Sheldon Leonard put that fine cat. I mean, where he found all those people all, <laughs> for that show, I'll never know. And the thing is, with some old shows, you can watch the the pilot or the early episodes, and the characters are still rough. They haven't mm -hmm. been then haven't been refined. But even the very earliest episodes of Andy Griffith, uh, all of you seem fully fully formed. That's right. Yeah, 
And what a, what, a, what a great treat it is to go back and watch any of the early episodes. Now, Andy changed his character on purpose a little bit, because in the beginning he was going to be try to be funnier. Then he began to see that <laughs> that the guys like Barney and, and you know, uh, Gomer and Goober and everybody were going to be the funny ones. So he began to pull back and sort of play more straight man. He figured somebody had to have some, <laughs> some sense there. And what great confidence, self-confidence that takes for an yeah. actor to be able to do, give somebody else the laughs. Absolutely. Absolutely. What? Now, I've heard it said by one of your other former fellow cast members who wrote his own book a few years ago that Andy Griffith was a control freak, that everything had to be Andy's way on the show. Yes, he was in charge. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, you, you phrased it much more diplomatically. Than <laughs> your, the, the, your your fellow former castmate made it sound like this wasn't always a good thing that Andy was had to have his way every day. Oh, I thought it was a good thing. I, I thought he I thought he ran it very well. Did he? I've often wondered who's. How did it come up with the episodes in which you're trying to remember the the the, the preamble to the Constitution or or the 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 officer's oath or whatever it was? There were two or three episodes where you were just just struggling mightily to come up with these words. Of of we the people of the the United United we the people of the United flag free mm. win mm. win. Mm. States. States. We the people of the United States. Is that shtick that you came up with, or was that Andy, or some of both? Or? Well, in that case, that, I came up with that one, the preamble, <clears throat> because we occasionally uh, I said it on the rewrites with Andy and the producer and the director, and uh, sometimes Andy would say, "Don, go over there. We have to cut out a few pages here. Go over there and write something." <laughs> And I wrote that one one day. That, that is such a great piece of business. <laughs> it, was fun. it was fun. Now, clear up something else for me. There are at least two or three episodes in which Barney Fife cannot sing. Dis <laughs> despite the best efforts of Mrs. Poultice to get him to sing like Leonard Blush can. Right. <laughs> can Don not sing? <laughs> not really. I sing a little tenor, actually. Sometimes we would harmonize a little bit. But we had to you know, we had to go off for that uh, particular joke. <laughs> those were some of my favorite episodes. I can never watch those enough. Now, you say in the book that one of the things you are most frequently asked is why you left the show when you did. Yes. Well, the reason was uh, Andy had contended from the very beginning that he would only stay on the air five years. He was gonna. That's all he would do. So, in the middle of the fifth season, I naturally started looking around for work. For the following season, I got an offer from Lou Wasserman to make pictures for Universal. And then Andy, the last minute, changed his mind. And uh, by then, I'd already really committed myself to, to Universal. So I went ahead. And I'd always wanted to get, to get a picture contract. I never dreamed I would, so it was... To this day, a lot of us refer to those those Universal pictures as the trilogy because we love those pictures so much. Oh, the, thank the, the, you. The, the, uh, the Ghost and Mr. Chicken, which, as you confirmed in the book, something that I had suspected, that it was really inspired to you by one of the Andy Griffith episodes. That's right, exactly. Yeah, because, yeah, the uh, when we went in the haunted house. With the, the eyes and the painting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nobody got scared better than Barney Fife. <laughs> You, you had that you had that that wide-eyed look that that very few people can duplicate, and it was just a 
um, it, it seemed a natural if that would be such a popular movie. My daughters don't love that movie. They don't oh. like the, the black and white series. They can take a leave, but the movies, they, and the reluctant Thank astronaut and, and all, and all. Now, how did you get in with the love God? This was a different kind of movie. Well, uh, that, that story was suggested to me by one of the writers I'd been working with, but then the writers had to go off on another project, and a fellow named Nat Hyken came out from New York, and uh, he decided to, to go ahead. And, I, I told him about it, and he would, said he'd go ahead and write it. And Universal gave him a contract, and, and he wrote The Love God. Uh, it was a funny picture, but it didn't do very well. Uh, they didn't book it as well as they would like to have. Plus, it had a, a little bit more mature rating than yeah. Because than the I think that was the reason <laughs> people weren't quite ready for an M at that point. M would today, I guess, would be PG. Right, right. Rated, uh, a movie from Don Knotts. Mm, yeah, mm, naughty. It's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> then comes the Apple Dumpling Gang. Those were wonderful movies too. Oh, that was much later. Yeah, that was Disney. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you, now you said in the book that you'd always thought of yourself as kind of a Disney kind of guy. Yeah, I, I was surprised they hadn't called me before. <laughs> I don't know. It was many years later when Disney called me to do the Apple Dumpling Gang. And you'd never worked with Tim Conway never before? Had. Never wow. had. How are we going to get it out of that bank? All right, first we've got to get ourselves a long ladder, and we're going to go in through the skylight, through the roof. And we got to get that nugget out of town. And I figure if it's worth $87,000, it ought to... Oh, I'd say it'd weigh close to... Let's see, gold is $15 an ounce... How many ounces in a pound? Uh, Are you listening to me, Amos? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, but what? Your rear end's on fire, Theodore. Oh, thank you. Ah! <laughs> that, that, too, is. it seems like such a natural pairing. It seems like you would have been together long before that. Yeah, and it was really fun. I had to, I, then, now, I had to move a little into the uh, not straight man, but sort of straight man role because Tim was the, really the goofy <laughs> one. <laughs> <laughs> which, which again, you probably by Andy Griffith's example to you meant this is something that I'm going to have to you know sublimate my own uh, <laughs> personality a little bit. Let somebody else have some of the laughs. That takes a big man too. But Tim is so funny, and uh, when you work with him, you never you never know what he's going to do next. <laughs> And sometimes uh, you laugh right into a take. I did it many times. <laughs> I'm wondering. I, I couldn't help wondering how many thousands of feet of film have been ruined. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now, at, at some, I'm, I'm fast forwarding very quickly so we can get all the the, the book in. You wind up on Three's Company. This is uh, you have a whole new generation of people now who have only vague I'm recollections of Barney Fife, but boy, they show uh, sure know Mr. Farley. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Farley. <I> <laughs> Yeah, it was a whole different. That was a whole different can of worms. Uh, Three's Company was shot pretty much the way sitcoms are shot today, in the four or five cameras in front of a live audience, and uh, went through the whole show. Now, the Andy Griffith show, of course, was shot like a movie on one one camera, and we would move the camera around, take uh, you know each scene over and over and so forth. But you went straight through on Three's Company. And uh, then the, we would break and uh, make changes, go back and bring another audience in, do it again. Then they would put the, the tape together. Uh, that was a little different and, t- in a way, tougher to do. But it's also a whole different way of working because you don't have that time and you, and you don't have the subtle chance, the chance to make subtleties in your character. It's all pretty much get the big laugh from the audience. 
But it was fun. It was really fun, and these kids were great. And it was the only time in your career you've ever missed an entrance? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a baseball fan, and, and the Dodgers were playing an important game to determine if they were going to get in the World Series. And I had it on my dressing room while we were taping Three's Company, and I kept running in and looking, you know, and run back. And finally, I saw something really exciting. Are they going to make it? There was a knock on the door. I opened the stage manager and said, Mr. Knotts, you just missed your entrance. <laughs> I was so humiliated. <laughs> I'd never done that before. Now, when you think back on all that you've done, I mean, all the, the, the wonderful roles that you've had, the marvelous, the, the, the cultural icon you've become, is this the body of work that you kind of had in mind that you would leave when you first started in the business? I must say, I know I don't, I don't think I had anything in mind. <laughs> uh, I was just trying to get get a job, as they say. I, I really no, I really didn't know what I was going to wind up doing. Could you have wound up a serious actor? I don't think so. Uh, there was too much humor in my background, my family, and so forth. Uh, everybody in my family was uh, humorous and. I had a brother, Shadow, who was a very, very talented comedian, and uh, it was just a part of me. I did play one serious role on Search for Tomorrow for a few years, <laughs> but it wasn't as much fun as comedy. I, I, I couldn't help wondering, I mean, is it, is, it, is it harder to do a moment of comedy within a drama than it is to do a moment of drama within a comedy? Either one is tough, <laughs> even hearing it. <laughs> <laughs> So what do you do now? I do a lot of theater now, and uh, an occasional part. I did uh, a part in a Pleasantville well, yes, movie. Yes, yes. Uh, I think that was the first time I ever heard you say a naughty word. They made me do it. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted me to say worse, than I wasn't. Don Knotts died in 2006. He was 81. Now you can find easy links to Don Knotts' book on Amazon.com at HeardEverything.com. If you like our content, please subscribe to Now I've Heard Everything in your favorite podcast app. We bring you fresh episodes three times a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And, of course, you can find our entire archive online at heardeverything.com. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, they made a movie about her. They named the movie after her. My 2001 interview with Aaron Brockovich. We never thought... Gee, it's going to settle for $333 million. I mean, are you kidding me? Let alone a movie be made about it. Julia Roberts is going to play me. They're going to name it after me. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. And welcome to Season 3. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.